Welcome back to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. Buckle up for an interesting discussion today, everyone. We have the great honor of hosting a name brand in the manufactured home community sector, George Allen. He's joining us, and I cannot wait to talk about the history of the industry and his outlook based on what's going on today. Simply put, George Allen is a legend in the manufactured home community market. He's a retired Marine Corps lieutenant colonel and a decorated Vietnam combat veteran. George has been in the manufactured housing community sector since 1970. In 1980, he and his wife founded GFA Management to manage communities in the Midwest. In 1988, George published his first book, Mobile Home Park Management. Today, it's in its seventh edition, entitled Land Lease Community Management. To date, he's trained and certified nearly 1,500 manufactured housing managers, MHM, using that text. Since then, he's authored and co-authored several books and more than 500 weekly blogs. Let's go to the top of the cake of accolades. In 2011, George was inducted into the RVMH Heritage Foundation's Hall of Fame in Elkhart, Indiana. George, uh, thank you very much for joining us here today. It is a, really an honor, I have to say. You are a legend in the manufactured housing industry, and you've been a good friend of mine for many years. So thank you for your time this afternoon, George. And thank you for inviting me. I'm enjoying it. I long have considered you the industry's historian. But you also more than dabble in property management and mystery mm -hmm. shopping, research and academia, advocacy, networking, deal making, and a whole range of consulting projects. So obviously you're a curious person. You're a smart guy with a lot of industry insight and, and experience here. So I would really appreciate it if you'd explain for our listeners, as you see it, what is the history of this housing stock and and specifically, what's the history of mobile home parks or manufactured home communities? What's your elevator speech when people say, oh, what business are you in, George? Well, it's interesting you, you should ask. I mean, I've written much about it. In fact, now that I have a, a column in every issue of Manufactured Housing Insider magazine called The Allen Legacy, that's exactly what they want me to do. They want me to talk about whatever I want to talk about, but from a historical perspective. And so that's been a lot of fun to do. And one of the uh, unexpected fallouts if you will, for me, closing down my commercial office a few months ago was we uh, boxed up my our extensive library. In fact, according to the Library of Congress and the Building Institute, uh, I have more books on manufactured housing and communities than anywhere else in the country. Well, not anymore, because I've boxed them up. They're all now at the RVMH Hall of Fame in Elkhart, Indiana, being phased into their library. But in the process of boxing those books up, I came across a dozen or more books that I knew I had. But they all rated back 20, 30, 40 years that some I had read, some I hadn't. So I, I saved those books, figuring, you know what, this should make some good reading material and background material for some of the material that I'll probably write. And just by the sheerest of coincidence, yesterday when I started working on preparing for this morning's interview, I was also working on a blog posting for next week. And so I pulled one of these books out that I had never read before, and I had read parts of it. It's called The Art of Community. It was written in 1970 by a man who I never met, Spencer McCallum. He takes and profiles the nature of various types of communities around the United States. And one of the thing, communities is 
manufactured home communities, or as he calls them, mobile home parks. And so if you don't bear with me for a minute, because he does a much better job in prose than I could do in talking for a minute, we're going to read two, maybe three short paragraphs from the book that I have put into my blog for next week, because that's exactly what he does. Right. Describes the genesis of mobile homes and mobile home parks. What I'm going to read now is, is, quote, it's not me. The mobile home park represents the first substantial use of ground lease for single-family homes. Its history commenced in the late 1940s when a few automobile travel trailers began to be manufactured large enough for permanent living. The resulting mobile home was the first successful factory-constructed house. Because it resembled a trailer more than a house, however, and was unfashionable at the time, the significance of this technological accomplishment was overlooked. New paragraph. From the beginning, mobile homes were distinguished from trailers, meaning travel trailers, by greater, their greater size. The majority of travel trailers today measure 8 foot wide by 20, 29 feet long, which approaches the maximum load that can be towed behind a family car. Three-fifths of the units manufactured in 1969 were over 60 feet long, and virtually all were 12 and 14 foot wide. The trailer and mobile home each gave rise to a distinctive form of proprietary community trailering parks trace their descent from the early automobile campgrounds, especially in California in the 1920s. New paragraph. The mobile home park, however, is a parcel of land under single ownership, which has been planned and improved for placement of mobile homes for non-transient use. The fact that it, a mobile home is relocatable apparently has psychological appeal. And pay attention to this sentence. It's really kind of interesting. For an increasing mobile population, it is attractive to think of moving across the United States by sending the house ahead and having it ready to step into and prepare your meal when you arrive. I can't think of that ever happening. But <laughs> <laughs> the, last, the last comment that I'll read that part of it here is, in 1969, more than a third of all single-family housing starts in the United States were mobile homes. So we're at 5% now. Wow. But, and in 1973, we were, we were at 50%. But at that point, 69, we were at uh, 30%. So anyway, they were the comments that I had pulled out of the book that I felt really addressed those questions that you were asking me. That's really interesting, George. I have on my bookshelf a 1970 issue of Popular Mechanics. I think I've shared this article with you. In that piece, the author cited the addition of carports and add-ons in California mobile home parks as marking the transition from travel trailer parks to permanent housing. And what was really interesting is he theorized in that article that now that these homes are being set permanently and occupied permanently, that the underlying land and home will transition to more subdivision like where owners of mobile homes will be buying their individual lots. And of course, you and I know and our listeners know that that actually is quite rare. Actually, the land lease or mobile home park community model became the predominant model in the country for homeowners buying homes on land owned by a third party, which is a piece that I share often because it's, a again, 50-plus-year-old piece now. I'm really curious, in the history of manufactured housing communities specifically, there's been some highs and some lows. I'd love it if you could maybe just identify two or three milestones as you see it in the industry's history that perhaps where there's still remnants of that legacy still to this day. Are there some key events in this industry's 50 plus year history? 
Well, you know, there, there certainly are. And and I thought about defaulting to the ones that everybody else mentions as, you know, the um, entrance of the HUD code in the mid-70s. Depends on who you talk to. That's either a positive or a negative. But I, I picked out a couple of things that, that I was involved with that I think have historic import. And that was that in 1993, a number of the, well, what wasn't known at the time was that several large companies were planning to go public as real estate investment trusts, REITs, in 1994. So in 1992, thereabouts, several of the executives of those firms came to me and said, we have a problem. We're getting ready to go public nationally as a public company. But we have, in our opinion, virtually no national advocacy for this type of income-producing property like the apartment industry does or condominiums. We need to explore this and come up with a, a solution. I called a meeting in Indianapolis on August 31st, 1993, and 19 community owners showed up from all over the country, from California to New Jersey. It was in Indianapolis. We met for an entire day. And what it, the format was basically the traditional brainstorming type situation where we put pieces of paper up on the wall all around a room and talked about what we were looking to do and whatever. The upshot of it was that over the next year, we met several more times and formed what was called the Industry Steering Committee. And the idea was to find a home for that Industry Steering Committee that would represent it nationally. So I reached out to the Institute of Real Estate Management. I reached out to the Apartment Association. I reached out to the MHI. Pretty much those three I think I maybe did the uh, condominium group. I'm not sure. But anyway, nobody wanted anything to do with us. And I could never really figure out why. I mean, was it the trailer park snootiness aspect of it, or was it something else? Well, I kind of got a feel for it because when no one would accept us, the guys told me, okay, we're going to form a a not-for-profit. You need to raise some dues. And I don't remember the exact amount now, but within the next 30 days, I raised close to $50,000 in dues from these 19 large companies. And I made a point to let these outfits know that kind of ignored us. I had done that. Well, guess what? MHI jumped on that right away. In other words, they saw immediately an opportunity to increase their revenue stream because they were things weren't real healthy at that point. We started to meet with them, and it took two years to do it. In 1996, uh, we kicked off what's called the National Communities Council Division of MHI. And so now, ever since then, we have had a national advocate in Washington, D.C. for this type of income-producing property. Do you have any comments on the chattel collapse? Actually, that's where I was going to go next. Oh, okay. You would ask me for some highs and lows. Yeah. And I was thinking that to be a low in terms of what happened in terms of our losing our easy access to chattel capital and it has not returned to this day. <laughs> the notes I have is that, well, there were a lot of things that you can lay to blame as to why that happened. And unfortunately, your listeners probably don't have access to this unless you make a copy and you have my permission to do this if you want to tell the story that's in the swan song history of the community asset class. The story that says the story of um, upside down in a mobile home park. When I wrote that, I took a lot of heat because I was telling, I was airing our dirty laundry in public, so to speak. And it's interesting because now today, on a relatively rare occasion, when I get to share that story with someone that's just relatively new to the business. They find it almost impossible to believe that we would have done the sort of things that we did 
financially to our home buyers back in 1999 and 2000 and 2001. So the story is called Upside Down in a Mobile Home Park. And again, if you want to make copies of it and email it to your listeners or however, it's fine with me. We will provide a link on our podcast notes, George. This is terrific. Okay. And to be honest with you, and, and you know this, we still, we still have not, we don't even have reasonable access to channel capital. It's difficult for me to want to talk about those reasons other than to make the general comment that not all independent third-party lenders are terribly excited about making it easier for homeowners to get these loans, nor is the GSE, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Macs, all that interested in providing a way to get more chattel capital. There's just personal reasons and political reasons involved. I find it difficult. If people read or listen to this, read my blog, they can find that out this week, last week and this week, because I, I cover a number of those things in a fashion that uh, I'm already getting positive and negative feedback. Sure. George, that take on the history is, is pretty remarkable, but how do you describe what's going on in the business that is manufactured housing today? You know, what will these next couple of years, 2020, 2021, as we come out of the pandemic, what will that period sort of be remembered for? Where do you see it heading from here? Where's it going to go from here? I guess I will, to be honest with you, I don't see any major changes. Well, there's one I'll, I'll talk about in a minute, but the owners that are in the business and are successful are staying successful. The major anomaly I see right now, though, there's a lot of, not a lot, there are some major hedge funds from outside the industry who have discovered us. And with the uh, low interest rates, they figured out we're low-hanging fruit, basically, in the investment property realm. And so they've been buying properties, overvaluing. I mean, they literally paid twice what it's worth to buy a property because they feel, and oftentimes they're true, that they'll believe that the property they're buying is under market rent. Well, mainly because the developer that developed it and owns it made enough money the way it was working. He didn't need to maximize profitability. Well, the these hedge funds that are buying up profitabilities is what they're all about. And so, therefore, they'll come in and raise the rents and do a number of things that are certainly, in a lot of cases, perfectly right to do. And unfortunately, the residents, I prefer to call them homeowners, site lessees, that have lived all there those years are the ones that take the negative side of that whole picture. So I, I don't really see a whole lot of difference other than I think there'll be a shakeout at some point of folks that are managing with no regards to the people that are paying the rent. But that's going to be just as bad for those people as it is for the uh, owner of the property. So I'm not particularly optimistic, nor do I try to be particularly pessimistic. I just think it is what it is, and it's going to have to work its way out over time. Well, we've certainly seen that in the marketplace and as co-ops are buying their communities, we're seeing in some parts of the country just excessive prices on communities, as you say, twice what they're worth. The problem, of course, in the private market, what a property is worth is what a buyer and a seller agree it's worth. And we're really seeing super low capitalization rates, cap rates, and expected high, big increases in in site fees in order to pay for that. George, you sort of suggested that there will be some shakeout. People ask frequently, are we seeing a bubble in the manufactured housing community business with these high prices being paid? Is there anything in the industry's history where 
bubbles have been created on the community purchase side. Is there any parallel that you can draw from your long history here? There's a parallel, but it's not a perfect parallel to this. The last time things like this happened in reverse, and that was back in the early 1970s when we had this great volume of homes being manufactured like I read about in a historical piece. Mm -hmm. The problem was there were no properties to send them into. I mean, literally, the number of communities was between 10 and 20,000 across the entire United States. And so there was a period of time between late 60s and mid-70s when there were hundreds, no, no, hundreds, thousands of new manufactured home communities were being built. And in fact, my first property that I built out of foreclosure in uh, 1980, I had five, you know, 500 sites, I only had 100 homes in place. But it had been one of these properties that had been built in that window of opportunity. And when the HUD code came along, it just shut off production. And I saw newspaper clippings at the time showing homes lined up along the highway outside of the property waiting to come in to be installed on site. But then within a matter of weeks after that new regulation went in effect, there were no homes to be seen because the factories went out of business that couldn't produce according to these new standards. And so that was a major, major shakeout at that point in time, but it was for a completely different set of reasons than what we're experiencing today. We did have, and I'm not recalling the years, George, we did have a publicly traded firm that came into the business hot and heavy, did buy a lot of communities, and it was eventually taken over by two hedge fund investors that later disposed of the communities. But that's the only historic parallel I can think of on the community side, which leads me to wonder aloud with you, while there may be an argument that there's a bubble here, does the bubble only burst for a small number of operators that got out over their skis, paid too much, assumed too high a rent increases, forced vacancies, what have you? Because that's what I've seen is isolated bubbles popping as opposed to sort of industry-wide, as you think about the tech bubble, that was sort of an industry-wide bubble, whereas I think here it's more small bubbles that get burst. I never thought of it in that respect, but I would be, without going into more detail, I would think you're entirely right. Uh, I don't see any kind of a shakeout industry-wide, nationwide at all. George, what about resident ownership? Never heard of it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Sure. You're, I mean, I was going to say you're as familiar with us as anyone else, any of the other big players out there, but <laughs> <laughs> you shot that down. I mean, how well understood do you think resident ownership is out there in, in the industry? And people must call you for advice about a whole range of things and community owners who are considering selling. What are you hearing from those kind of people? What's the range of views that you hear out there in industry about resident ownership? This is going to be good news to you guys probably hear this. I would say over the last 15, maybe 20 years now, since I've been familiar with your firm, I have seen overall the attitude go from, who is this? What is this? Why would I even put myself through this situation? Now, too, and this is a very strong positive to uh, Rock USA, is that you've made the whole process respectable. I mean, that's my opinion. Respectable in the sense that the calls I get today are, just number one, confirming that you're for real and that this is something that I should seriously consider because it's still not talked about or written about in investment textbooks, for instance, okay? Because it's not an independent real estate investment situation. 
I mean, it may have started that way, but it won't be once it becomes a resident community. So the strongest positive I can give you is that it's now respectable. Well, thank you very much, George. Truly appreciate your comments there. I put my stamp of approval on Rock USA a few years ago when, Paul, I came to you and asked you to write a chapter to insert in the second edition of Swan Song, the history of communities and manufacturing housing. You did that, and that's the way it exists today. And again, I don't know how many of your listeners right now know that. But again, just like the item we just talked about a little bit ago, the article, the reprint you're going to maybe make a link to, you should make a link to that chapter in the book with this commentary, that we've come a long way since we started back in whatever year that was. And we are a published part of the history of this industry and community uh, asset class. And the proof of the pudding, if you need it, is we enjoy an entire chapter in the only textbook that describes the history of communities. Thank you. Thanks for bringing that back to my attention. I have it right on my bookshelf, George. And and you're right, I have it in print form and in our digital world. It sat there in print form and not been converted to digital, but let's do that and let's link it here for sure. George, you've worked in the MHC sector for many years and in all different aspects of it. What words of advice would you have for our rock leaders who are serving on boards in their communities and leading their communities? Any tidbits that stick out from your years of managing manufactured home communities? I mean, what really makes a community shine and stick out from its peers? The management of the community. There's many other ways I could answer that question. I could say curb appeal, uh, could say marketing, I could say resident relations. I've gone on record to say to my my peers in the for-profit side of this business, and as well as you guys, that the one area that I feel that I've not addressed as fully and as completely as it needed to be is the whole area of professional property management. I've been a certified property manager now since 1982, and I'm proud of it. The folks that are volunteering their time to serve on boards in these residential communities, I think are down and dirty type, like looking for that the down and dirty information, just because they're pressed for time. This is just another part of their busy lives. Is there a practical bit of one or two bits of practical advice you would offer them, especially if they're in a community that they've just purchased and really trying to change the perception of both their neighbors and the larger community? What are one or two things they could do to just make an immediate impact? Well, I was with you until you said immediate impact. (laughs) Because uh, what I'm going to suggest to you is not immediate. Uh, you start on it, but it takes a little while. And, it, and I feel kind of funny saying it because it's a little bit of self-promotion. I wrote a book on mobile home park management. That was the name of it back in 1988. It's going through eight editions over the last uh, 30 years. It's now, I think, I don't have a copy in front of me, but operating communities in the manufactured housing industry. And it's 250 pages long, a spiral-bound book. It's filled with blank forms that you can put on a copy machine and make. And that book has taken the form that it's in today for the precise reason of what you're asking me, Mm -hmm. is give anybody, the brand-new manager, the veteran manager, a tool by which they can handle virtually anything they're going to come up against. And I'm pleased that there are thousands of that book in its various iterations around the country. But in my opinion, it will not be completely where it should be until there's one in every manufacturer home community. Now, I don't think it's ever going to happen. But the point is, that is, to me, the single piece of advice I can give you and the people that are listening to this is to get a hold of that book and spend the time with it you need to 
to learn how to do or redo some of the things that you're involved with today. That's great, George. We have dueling manuals, George, because co-op leaders in Rock USA Network will recognize the management guide as the parallel. And and I can assure you, and George is very generous with his resources, we certainly leveraged George's intellectual property in, in producing the management guide back in the day. We'll be connecting listeners to some of your online resources, George, and hopefully it'll spark some orders for you here. George, I want to thank you very much for joining us on Ownership Matters. You have been a great guest, no surprise. You've also been a great sparring partner over the years and a good friend for a long time. So I'm really glad we had this opportunity to record your insights and looking forward to sharing them out with our audience. And George, thank you very much and be well. Well, You're very, very welcome. I've enjoyed the experience as well. There you have it, Paul. George Allen. How many other people in this industry do you think could give us not only a pretty encyclopedic history lesson, but also a forecast of what's to come? Very few, Mike. Very few. I have to say, you know, I wish I had used tiny bubbles instead of small bubbles (laughs) to describe what may be happening in the sector today with these high prices that some investors are paying for communities. Tiny Bubbles was one of my father's favorite songs, Mike. Are you thirsty? Thirsty for more guests, Mike? Yes. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us, everyone. Be well. Be well.